Friends, good to be with you. Um, we are back with Q&A. You missed it, I know. The Slido code is up there. If you're not familiar with Slido, it is a website or an app you can download. And it means you can post questions on, um, that I will attempt to respond to a bit later. You can also upvote other people's questions. It's really cool. Um, so if you want to get connected with that, now is the time to do that. Uh, and we'll have a little bit of time after the sermon uh, to send in your questions as well. Uh, before I get up again. Uh, before we do, um, let me jump in with a prayer. Uh, Father, uh, we recognize that this is a world uh, where untruth abounds, that there are lots of messages in our culture, in our world, in our own hearts that don't align to who you are, don't align to your word, don't align to what is good for us. Father, we need your wisdom, the wisdom that only, only the Holy Spirit can bring to help us discern between true and false, good and bad, destructive and healthy. And so, Father, come and be with us by your Spirit. Show us Christ. Fill our vision with him. Amen. Sweet little lies. Sweet because they are things we want to believe. Little because they seem innocuous, so small and insignificant that they couldn't possibly harm anyone. Lies, because despite their seeming innocence and sweetness, they are destructive and untrue. We hear sweet little lies every Day, multiple times a day, sayings that have become so enmeshed in the fabric of our culture that they are assumed to be self-evident. And in this series, we're going to explore how the Bible challenges and exposes a few of these messages as sweet little lies. And so today we're going to start with potentially the granddaddy of them all, be true to yourself be true to yourself. There are so many variations of this one. Follow your heart, follow your dreams, live your truth, speak your truth, find yourself, you do you, live your best life. They all of them, uh, they all boil down to the same basic idea that the only way to live an authentic life is to recognize your deepest desires and then pursue them at all costs. The only way to live an authentic life is to recognize your deepest desires and pursue them at all costs. Uh, The philosopher Charles Taylor came up with a name for this particular message. He called it expressive individualism. It's a term we're going to learn, expressive individualism. You can trot it out at your next dinner party to sound impressive and cool. Expressive individualism just simply means that as an individual, your highest uh, calling, purpose in life is to express yourself, to take what is inside and make it outside for everyone to see. It's a message that has become so ubiquitous that for most people in the Western world, it's how they navigate their lives simply by instinct. It's so obvious, so self-evident, so clearly true that surely it is unchallengeable. 
And yet, that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to challenge it. Well, actually, first we're going to understand it a bit more. Then we're going to see how the Bible challenges it. And then we're going to see how the gospel subverts it. You got it? We're going to understand it. We're going to challenge it. We're going to subvert it. So let's understand it a bit more. Be true to yourself. Or, in the original Shakespearean, to thine own self be true. Because that's where it's come from. Do you know that? I didn't know that until I Googled it. To thine own self be true. It's from Shakespeare. It's from Hamlet. Act 1, scene 3. And it comes from the mouth of Polonius. And it's part of a speech that Polonius gives to his own grown children, Laertes and Ophelia. Uh, And it sounds like definitive wisdom. But like in so many things, context is everything. Because Shakespeare did not write Polonius to be this wise sage giving out advice of the ages. No, he is is shown to be, very clearly in the play, a pompous, hypocritical bag of wind. (laughs) And actually, in this particular scene, um, when it's uh, put on stage, they often have Polonius out front kind of waxing lyrical while his children sit in the background making rude gestures at him (laughs) because they're like because he's droning on and on and on pontificating and what is true for the line in the play hamlet is also true for the proverb it has become context (laughs) is everything the idea that your life must be aligned to your feelings is actually relatively new at least relatively, in the history of the world. Uh, Ancient people had no such assumption. You didn't look within yourself to figure out who you were. That's crazy. No one did that. No, you looked outside yourself. You looked to your network of relationships, your family, your clan, your city-state, your nation, your rulers, your religion. You looked outside of yourself to figure out your inner world. And external authorities, they helped you to figure out your inner world. Uh, the, the Christian historian Carl Truman has written this book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, not a quick read, but a great read. And he kind of charts the movement of how be true to yourself as a maxim for life developed. And it took hundreds of years, actually. He begins uh, with the 18th century philosopher from uh, Switzerland, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, and in his Uh, introduction to his own autobiography. This is what Rousseau wrote. It is the history of my soul that I promised, and to relate it faithfully, I require no other memorandum. All I need to do, as I have done up until now, is to look inside myself. Rousseau um, inspired later romantic writers like Percy Shelley and William Wordsworth, who took his ideas and made them poetry. And then postmodern philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche and Karl Marx. Um, and then b- beyond them, um, people like Sigmund Freud and Wilhelm Reich in the 20th century developed this idea so that 400 years later, people who audiences, you know, first chuckled at Polonius' speeches, those same audiences to this idea of to thine own self be true, view it and accept it as definitive wisdom for the age. Be true to yourself is is no laughing matter anymore. It is simply 
true. It is the air we breathe. It is the ocean in which we swim. Every day, in a thousand different ways, you hear this message communicated. Every time you log on to the internet, every time you see an ad, any kind of, almost any time of media, this is the message that you receive. And so who is the modern Jean-Jacques Rousseau? Who is the philosopher of our age, the great one who is communicating this? Look no further than Disney films. Oh yes, Disney films. And I was tempted to go with Frozen, but no, I'm gonna go more current. Who has seen Turning Red? Anyone? Seen Turning Red? Jess Kirsten. Uh, and only because you're a primary school teacher, presumably. Uh, it's the story of Mei Li. Uh, it's a 13-year-old Chinese-Canadian student uh, who finds, uh, much to her dismay, that her strong emotions turn her into a giant red panda. We've all had experience with this, obviously. Um, now, it's, it's a pretty clear symbol for coming of age and puberty, right? That this, your strong internal feelings transform you into this, in this film at least, a beast. Uh, and here's May's opening dialogue from the film. The number one rule in my family, honor your parents. Of course, some people are like, be careful, honoring your parents sounds great. But if you take it too far, well, you might forget to honor yourself. Luckily, I don't have that problem. I've been doing my own thing, making my own moves. I wear what I want, I say what I want, and I will not hesitate to do a spontaneous cartwheel if I feel so moved. <laughs> Thus, with those lines, is set up this clash of authority. We've got May's controlling, strict mother versus her own desire to make her own moves, chart her own course, do herself, you to you. Uh, and it's a clash between traditional Eastern values of an older generation and the modern Western values of a younger one. And in the film, the clash is literally played out with a gigantic battle between the two red pandas, uh, May's smaller panda and her mother's King Kong-esque panda. You, you've got to see it to understand. Um, but the film's message is pretty clear. It's vitally important for May to let out the beast within, to be her own person, to follow her own desires, because that's where true authority lies, within yourself. Obey your feelings. Don't just follow traditions. Now, there's something good here, right? It's, it's a legitimate critique there can be an unhealthy power dynamic of domineering control that can happen, right? Um, but you can see this, the pendulum swing. What's the answer from, to domineering control? It's all the way over to complete unrestricted freedom. And so at this point, we have to quote Frozen. We'll do Let It Go. You know the verse. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Expressive individualism um, turns upside down this traditional approach to authority. The place of external authorities has changed. Parents, governments, teachers, religion, the, their place is never to command, always to affirm. 
Their role is to recognize and encourage self-expression and then pave the way to it, removing any obstacle. And anyone who doesn't like it, it just has to get out of the way. Got to get with the program. So that's expressive individualism. That's, that's at heart what it is. A true authority, the only authority that you need to follow to bring out the fullness of your life is internal. And anything external, well, they're just there to let you do you. So, can it be challenged? Um, absolutely, actually, because it doesn't take much to see that it's got some massive problems. First up, we might ask ourselves, well, who gets to be true to themselves? Uh, one film reviewer made a really interesting comment about turning red. Uh, they, they noticed that May is allowed, nay, encouraged to let her inner beast out because her beast is kind of cute and cuddly. But her mum's panda beast, the King Kong size one, is not. Very clearly, mum, don't let your beast out, but may go for it. So who gets to decide? Who gets to be true to themselves? Some people's truth is, is okay, and other people's truth is clearly not. Well, someone might say, well, the answer's clear, right? Because May's mum's panda was very destructive and tore down the city, and... May Lin's one didn't. And so it's all about just, well, if, if your desires are going to hurt someone, then you absolutely should not let it out. That would be terrible. And we'd agree with that, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about it in a couple of weeks when Stephen McAlpine is here and, and um, preaches on um, it's not hurting anyone. Uh, but for now, we should say that, well, yes, but it's often the case in history that what is, seems harmless today is considered very harmful tomorrow. So who's to know that what is fine today might not be fine tomorrow? Who's to say, who's gonna make that judgment call on whose desires are actually harmful and destructive and whose are not? And it turns out, of course, that the more you pursue your desires, the more you inevitably bring harm to others. As those close to you become collateral damage in your struggle for self-fulfillment. Someone has to pay for you to get the thing you want. Another problem um, which never comes out in Disney films uh, is what um, uh, uh, some, of, some philosophers have called plastic people. You remember the old uh, Aqua song, Barbie Girl? I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. Life is plastic. It's fantastic. You can brush my hair and dress me anywhere. Imagination, life is your creation. It's how we feel about ourselves. We are plastic people able to reinvent, recreate ourselves endlessly. Our desires are as changeable as the seasons, and so we find ourselves in a cycle of constant reinvention. And lots of people would proclaim this to be absolutely positive, a victory of human evolution. It's fantastic being plastic. Reality is a bit different. Brian Rosner, the principal of Ridley College, um, where I trained, has just released uh, a great book called How to Find Yourself. Um, and he argues that the freedom of being plastic comes with a cost. Because the thing about plastic is it's fragile. He writes, along with the exciting possibility to find yourself comes the daunting possibility of not succeeding 
or of not liking what you find. The thing about a constant cycle of reinvention is, as all constant cycles are, it's exhausting. It's exhausting having to reinvent yourself for every changing of the season. And so Brian Rosner notes that the result seems to be social trends that include the rising rates of anxiety and depression, the breakdown of civil society, as we've seen in places across the world, an increase in narcissism as people just look inwards at themselves all the time, reflexive outrage when anyone gets in the way of what you want, and a decline in overall happiness and contentment. So be true to yourself sounds great, but maybe, just maybe, making yourself your own authority is not as fulfilling as you might think. Be true to yourself is a modern idea, but at its heart, it's ancient. It's been around since the dawn of time. It's precisely what the serpent whispered into Eve's ear back in the garden. Don't trust in God. Don't bow to his authority. You do you. Eat the fruit. Go for it. Act for yourself with no reference to anyone else. Be your own God. Decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. And that's exactly what Eve did and what Adam did after her. And the rest is history. And so actually the Bible is a sustained critique of this idea. It is sustained, it is scathing, it is uncompromising in saying that this is a sweet yes, but not so little lie. Jeremiah 17 is just one of them. Let's come back with me to our our reading. Verses five and six, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. Now, in Jeremiah's context, he's referring to Israel's bad habit of trusting in external political powers uh, for their salvation. Uh, But the dynamics are the same for trusting in anyone who isn't God, including yourself. Jeremiah says that's a curse. Uh, He imagines that that kind of life is like being a dried-out desert shrub, sucking tiny amounts of water out of the ground just to survive. Surviving, yes, but maybe nothing anyone would call flourishing. Why is this so? Verse 9, because the heart is deceitful above all things. You can't trust your heart, Jeremiah says. You can't trust your heart desires that flow out of your heart. They're fickle and changeable. What seems good to you might actually be disastrous. What seems horrible to you might actually be exactly what you need. It's common wisdom that sometimes the worst person to give you advice is yourself because you are trapped in your own echo chamber. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, is really insightful. Uh, He writes, uh, kind of in in this, living this kind of lifestyle, years pass and the deepest parts of yourself go unexplored and unstructured. You are busy, but you have a vague anxiety that your life has not achieved its ultimate meaning and significance. 
You live with an unconscious boredom, not really loving, not really attached to the moral purposes that give life its worth. A humiliating gap opens up between your actual self and your desired self. <laughs> it's happening right now. In other words, when you find that you can't be the thing you want, when there's a gap between your actual self, who you are, your limitations and what you want, well, where does it leave you? Eternally frustrated. You become like a dried out shrub. No flourishing, no growth, no health. Now, where does this put us as Christians? Well, in a rather uncomfortable position, actually. Because on one hand, we hold to a faith which at its core has a view of life directly opposed to expressive individualism. Society says, be true to yourself, and we say, be true to God. And you can't be both. That makes us members of a rebellion. We willingly and gladly submit to an ultimate authority outside of ourselves, and more than that, we teach others to do the same. That's on one hand, we are members of a rebellion. <laughs> on the other hand, we don't realize just how much we are all impacted by expressive individualism because every day we are discipled into that gospel, the gospel of be true to yourself. So it's not hard to declare with your mouth, I turn to Christ, while your heart whispers, but to thine own self be true. Because the reality is, a real part of me wants it to be true. To me, it still tastes sweet like honey. It's a tantalizing idea that I might fulfill myself, that I might be my own God. And while Christian faith suggests a different way, religion is not necessarily a safe haven. The church is not a safe haven because it's been smuggled into institutional religion in all sorts of ways. A, a new uh, therapeutic Christianity has been promoted where God is primarily there to meet my needs and agree with me. And look, there are very overt versions of this that we kind of identify and go, ha, whatever, you know, the, the gospel of Oprah. But there are more subtle versions as well. Uh, in the evangelical church, in our own tradition, um, we have this reflex reaction against to be true to, to yourself. We go, we're not like that. I'm so glad I'm not like those people. But we can do it too. We smuggle it into our own spirituality more easily than you might think. And it happens anytime we use spiritual language to try and justify the things that we really want. And the most common one I've heard of is I've prayed about it. You heard that? Have you done that? I've prayed about it. I wanted this thing and I prayed about it and then God said I could have it. What do you say to that? Who can, who can argue against that? God said it must be true. But if you press a bit further in, there's not much more to it than that, is there? So I prayed about it. Did, you, did I also like consult my Christian community and my leaders? Oh, no. Did I, did I search the scriptures for any kind of wisdom? that might speak into this? Uh, not ex a little bit, not exactly. <laughs> Simply, I, w I wanted the thing, 
And I prayed about it, and God said, go for it, so I must be able to. And now maybe he did, but it's kind of a spiritual trump card, because who can argue with God, and who can prove that it wasn't God? That's just one way we do it. There are lots of others. Anytime we try and just justify to ourselves the thing that I want must be good for me. But if we are to assume that there's a strong temptation to do this, then we ought to be pretty suspicious of anything that might be an attempt to do it. Not that we shouldn't pray about things, obviously, but if you find yourself afraid to open your Bible or afraid to ask someone else what they think, then that might suggest to you that there's a pretty good reason to do exactly that. Because Christianity is ultimately about trusting in God's authority over our own. It's trusting that as creator, he knows the best way to live life. And as father, he wants the best for his children. As savior, savior, he wants to lead us down paths that lead to flourishing and light and life and away from paths that lead to destruction. And so this is how Jeremiah describes that kind of person. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. If be true to yourself creates plastic, brittle, fragile people, then be true to God forms people of permanence, planted fast and sure like an oak tree by an ever-flowing stream, permanently attached to a meaning and significance that cannot be taken away even in times of anxiety and hardship, lives that bear fruit because they're not about selfish living but about selflessness, self-giving, they bring light and life wherever they go. But the, the temptation towards be true to yourself is so real and so evident and it's so sweet. So what hope do we have? Where is the power to become this kind of person that Jeremiah describes? Where, where do we grow? What do we have to put our roots into to become an oak tree? Well, when Jesus arrived on the scene, it's interesting he didn't just challenge the philosophies of the age. He didn't just point out that they're empty and hollow. He subverted them. He took them, challenged them, and then turned them upside down and said, no, this is the way to live. Notice that in Genesis, Adam and Eve were expelled into the wilderness by God when they ate the fruit. Jesus, after his baptism, was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. He went into the place where there was dry and, and lifeless bushes. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan to put their desires above God's, and in that place, so was Jesus. What was the first thing that, Adam, uh, that the serpent tempt, that Satan tempted Jesus to do? He'd been fasting for 40 days. He was hungry. No, he was starving And, the, and Satan said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In other words, Jesus, fulfill your desire. You have the power, do it, fulfill it. Be true to yourself. Let your desires out. 
And Jesus knew that that was against God's will. He was fasting. This was an intentional hunger. And so if you're a reader, you're sitting on the edge of your seat going, what's he going to do? Will it happen again? Will the cycle continue? Will Jesus succumb to temptation? Will he give in? Will he use his power to fill his stomach? No. Jesus replied, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, there are more important things than food. Real life doesn't come from just chasing your desires, but from a relationship with the creator of life. And there are sometimes good reasons to tell yourself no. Remember, Jesus was no crazy ascetic. He, he loved parties and food and wine. and He loved it. He wasn't against food. But he always desired his father more than anything else. And then when that desire for, for his father conflicted with any other desire, God won. And Jesus spent the entire rest of his life um, living out this principle dying to his own desires in order to live for God and for others. And he found himself again in the garden, just like Adam and Eve, and again tempted, this time to forego the cross, to put his own safety and health before his purpose. Again, he passed the test. He went willingly, didn't he? Denied himself for the sake of billions of others, he became like that dried out shrub on the cross, withered out of, of life, so that the forgiveness that he paid for might be enough for people who have faith in him to become like beautiful oak trees, reconnected to the source of life. Jesus mastered his desires to obey God and love us. And it was a decision so foolish compared to the ruling wisdom of his day and our day, that Paul, in 1 Corinthians, was compelled to write this. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Christ invites us to find true wisdom in him and him alone, to find it in his life and his death and his resurrection, to see, be true to yourself as what it really is, empty and shallow, just like Polonius in Hamlet. And as rebels against the wisdom of our age, we're called to live into the subverting wisdom of Christ. Not by living true to ourselves, but trusting in the one who lived and died for us. To find ourselves in how we deny ourselves, not in how we please ourselves. To find ourselves not by looking in, but by looking up. To where Jesus is, seated on high, wrapped in glory and light, the reward for his obedience and the reward for those who have faith in him. Family, this is where wisdom lies. The one who is tested and tempted and did not fail and whose power has been given to us by the Holy Spirit
so that we can do the same. The same spirit who's opening our eyes right now to this sweet little lie, exposing it for what it is, subverting it, so that we can become Jeremiah's vision of that flourishing person and the flourishing people of the church, helping each other to do the same. I'm gonna pray. And then if you've got some questions, you can send them in and I'll have a go at responding. Father, um, this is an uncomfortable truth because we all have been tempted and tempted right now to, uh, to attach ourselves to the wisdom of this age that says, be true to yourself. But the wisdom of Christ is to deny ourselves, take up our crosses and follow him. Father, we can't do this without fixing our eyes on the one who has gone before us, that our, may, our vision might be Jesus, the one who has become our wisdom and who has proved it to be true and good and pleasant and life-giving. So may we become uh, this kind of people, Father, wise people, and who lead others to do the same. Amen. Thanks for sending in your questions. Uh, so first up, it seems like while be true to yourself is foolish, there's wisdom in knowing yourself. Is seeking to know and understand yourself problematic for a Christian? Uh, great question. Um, and uh, no, seeking to know yourself is a great and wise thing. Uh, in fact, John Calvin, one of the great reformers of the uh, 16th century, said that uh, pretty much everything boils down to know God and know yourself. Um, but the question is, what is the purpose of knowing yourself? Uh, looking inwards uh, can be a way of going, well, ultimate truth resides here. And if I could just find out more about myself, uh, then I will uncover the key to living life well. If I can just get in touch with my desires. Um, what Christians would say, knowing yourself is really important because, yes, it, um, it helps you to understand, and this is the second question as well, uh, your, how God's wired you, um, how he's designed you, how you are um, uh, are, how are you are beautifully and wonderfully made? Absolutely. Uh, but the Christian also goes out, well, we should also know ourselves because uh, we're sinful and therefore knowing yourself helps you to realise and unpack and uncover how deeply sinful you are. And the more sinful you realise yourself to be, well, there's the first part of John Calvin's paradigm. Know yourself, know God. The more sinful you know yourself to be, the more you need to uncover just as how God's grace and love extends even further. God's grace always goes deeper than your sin, no matter how far you can go. So there's positives to, to understand. So the second question then is, God makes us each unique with our own talents, interests, personality. What's the difference between honouring God who made us and expressive individualism? Well, expressive individualism would say, yes, I need to uncover my talents because um, and, my, and my personality um, and my abilities because by utilizing them, I will fulfill myself. So um, if I can just work out which job is going to best suit me and will be most fun for me, then when I do that job, then I will be fulfilled as a person. Well, we go, no, no, um, God designs us uh, not to be self-fulfilling, but to use what we've, he's made, how he's made us to be for the sake of others and for worshiping him and giving him glory. And so the more you do that, then you go, well, actually, you're uncovering who you're made to be. Um, so looking inward is not entirely bad, and we'd be very unwise to not do that. Um, you would become very shallow and superficial people anyway. 
um, looking inward is designed to, to, to reveal how actually God is more wonderful as a creator, um, more great as a saviour, more loving as a father, um, and uh, more, uh, more uh, um, that in his goodness he has created us to be his image bearers, reflecting who he is into the world he has made. But not like a, a kind of an echo chamber you know, of yourself, um, there's a lot to learn about our identity. How can we strike the balance between learning what God has to say about our identity and our own personality? Say about it, your own personality. Cool. Uh, if I understand the question right, I would say that this is the job of the scriptures. The scriptures are both a mirror and a lens. They're a mirror in that they reflect back who we are. They, they show us our great glory as, as people made in God's image. Um, and our great um, uh, fallenness as, as sinful people. So the scriptures are a mirror. The more you read the Bible, the more it should tell you who you are and what you're like, both very positively and very negatively. Um, but it's also a lens because it's through the scriptures that Jesus comes into focus. And he comes into focus as the, as the, the one perfect human who has become for us what we are always meant to be and will one day be the one who perfectly balances both um, a healthy optimism about himself as well as a whole healthy pessimism about the world, the one who perfectly utilizes everything that he has for God's glory and worship and for the good of others. So it's both a, a mirror to help us understand ourselves and also a, a lens through which we find Christ um, and for him to become our vision. 